All right, Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of all of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. Well, as you can tell, around here at Westside Chapel is officially the Christmas season. That's when the poinsettias come in. We've got quite a few, and it gets things get a little more red and green around here. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. I love it so much. I was suggesting to Ken for every season we should have different color flowers up here. I think it'd be great. But it is Christmas season, and I love this time of year because it is a, a time of joy and celebration, and it is a time where we think about the incredible thing that the Lord has done for us, and that is the incarnation of Christ, the birth of the Messiah. And for our Christmas series this year, we're going to do something a little different. Um, The series is called Christmas and Carols, and what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have one specific Christmas hymn that will be um, the focus of our service. This week is Joy to the World, and we will look at the passage that that hymn Uh, comes from or is inspired by. And so today is joy to the world, and the passage that uh, the hymn was inspired by was Psalm 98. Okay, so we just sang the song that's the focus of our service today. Um, The hymn was originally written by Isaac Watts in 1719. So this year is the 300th anniversary of Joy to the World. I think that's pretty incredible. Some like to call Joy to the World the accidental Christmas classic. And that's because it was not originally written to be a Christmas hymn. It was originally a poem. And it's part of a set of poems that Isaac Watts wrote called uh, The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. So Isaac Watts was taking psalms and adjusting them to refer more explicitly to the works of Jesus as it had been revealed in the New Testament. And so one of those psalms, or one of those psalms that this, uh, his poem was based on, one of those poems that the psalm was, uh, no, 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 I had it right the first time. One of the psalms are the poems that the, uh, man, I just confused myself. Let's back up. One of those poems was based on Psalm 98. There it is. All right. So the hymn, Joy to the World, it's not based uh, at least entirely on Luke 2, the angel's proclamation there it's based on psalm 98 and as such this well-known christian hymn um, it's not actually about the first coming of christ it's about the second coming of christ Um, it's about his future reign in the promised kingdom of god and the reason we sing this song at christmas time is because about a century after watts wrote this poem a boston music teacher named lowell mason um, put together the music of this hymn 
that we all sing and love today and release it around Christmas time. And it would go on to be the most published Christmas hymn in all of America. And so that's the history behind this hymn. And so the question is, should we sing this song at Christmas time, even though it's not explicitly about the birth of the Messiah? And uh, the answer is no, we will no longer be singing it. So. <laughs> and of course, I'm just kidding. We've been singing this song for hundreds of years. I'm not going to be the one to say we can't anymore. Um, it is completely good and appropriate to sing Joy to the World. Um, because uh, we celebrate the birth of Christ, not just what it means for us in the past, but for now, what it means for us now and in the future. And uh, today, we will take a look at the text that inspired that song, and in so doing, we will be reminded of the importance of the event that we celebrate this Christmas season. Um, So we'll look at Psalm 98 today. Um, Before we get into the psalm, I want to share a story with you. A lot of you know I'm, I'm from Tampa, Florida. I grew up as a fan of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's a national football team for those of you outside of Tampa. If you're outside Tampa, you probably haven't heard or care about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, the Buccaneers have, for the most part, been a terrible football franchise. They lost the first 26 games of their existence. Uh, their head coach would make jokes about them all the time. I think one reporter asked him, uh, how, did you feel about, how do you feel about your team's execution today? And he said, I'm for it. Um, <laughs> they have the worst winning percentage currently of any major professional team sport. So football, basketball, hockey, baseball. The Bucks are the worst the lowest winning percentage. They would have to win something. They would have to have, I think, 10 perfect seasons in order to get to 500 uh, to 50%. So, um, they're a bad football franchise. But, in 2002, things were different. Uh, That season was a different story. That year, they actually went all the way and won the Super Bowl. It was just such a big deal. It was so much fun. Um, I remember everything about that Super Bowl um, because I had so much fun with it. It was held in San Diego. It was Super Bowl 37. Shania Twain was the halftime performer. Uh, we won the game 48-21. to 21. I think we scored six touchdowns there. And I remember that because the way me and my friends would celebrate, we had a big party over at our house, and we would celebrate um, by... Every time they scored a touchdown, we would run out and we would jump into the ice-cold pool out back. It was about 40 degrees outside. That's how we would celebrate them scoring a touchdown. I don't know why we did it that way. We were high school boys. That's what we do. We celebrate in weird ways. And so we did that six times, and it was freezing. But we were so happy. We were so excited. We couldn't contain it. We jumped into the pool. And that's what I remember about the Bucks winning the Super Bowl is the way that people celebrated. I mean, if you... After the game, when they won, when the final whistle blew, I mean, the the players, they were just the happiest people on earth. They were crying. They were hugging each other. Everybody was telling everybody how much they loved each other. Um, Just so much joy and happiness. And the fans were shouting and hooting and hollering. We had a parade in Tampa later on. And it was just a ton of fun. 
And the reason I mention that is because I think as fan, players and fans of that franchise, I think that kind of celebration and joy and, and singing and shouting um, was an appropriate response if you're a fan or a player for that football franchise. Because they did something very difficult but very extraordinary. They won the Super Bowl. And so they responded appropriately. In our passage for this morning, we'll see the psalmist is exhorting his audience to celebrate and sing for joy. Why? Because the Lord has done something extraordinary and wonderful for them. And the only appropriate response would be to sing for joy and celebrate the great thing that he has done. So, let's look at our passage for today. Um, the context, doing the context of the Psalms is an interesting thing um, because they are uh, very different from one another and they are sometimes in their own categories. Um, the Psalms were written over a span of about a thousand years from Moses to the return of exile, uh, the per- return of Israel from exile in Babylon. Um, Psalms have many authors, of course, the primary author being David, and then there's Moses and Solomon and others. And there are many ways in which the Psalms have been categorized, and scholars vary on how to name each category, but you'll see Thanksgiving Psalms, Psalms of declarative praise, Psalms of descriptive praise, Psalms of lament, imprecatory Psalms. Okay, those are Psalms when the psalmist calls for the Lord to punish his enemies. Um, Messianic Psalms. And Psalm 98 is considered a royalty psalm or an enthronement psalm because it refers to the Lord as king. And that's the theme, not just for Psalm 98, but for most of the psalms, from Psalm 93 to Psalm 99, they are royalty psalms. They declare that the Lord reigns or that he judges or that he is king. So that's Psalm 98. Um, the author of this psalm is not clearly stated in the text, although the Septuagint attributes it to David. And the setting for the psalm is not clearly stated, although um, the best guesses that people have is that the event that inspired or caused this psalm are, is something extraordinary. So it's maybe something like uh, the Exodus or the return of the Israelites from exile, something like that. But something extraordinary has happened that the Lord has done. And so the psalmist is calling for the people of Israel to respond accordingly. Okay? So that's what's going on in the psalm. So let's look at the text. We'll get to verse 1, chapter 98. Verse 1. A psalm. Let's stop there. All right. Most of your Bibles have this word, a psalm, up next to the chapter number. So it kind of looks like it's not an actual part of the text, but it is. It's a part of the Hebrew text. Um, Now, a psalm is, uh, where was I? It's a psalm meaning that it's poetry that's intended to be sung with musical accompaniment. Okay, and that's what this word for psalms means. And so if you're ever wondering, how should I worship the Lord? Or... Um, how should I sing to him? There's a few ways to answer that, but the Psalms are a good way to start. We've got an example there for us how to sing in the scripture itself. And so a psalm, and it goes on, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Okay, so what is the appropriate response to the Lord's work 
in your life. Singing is one of those responses that the Lord instructs us to do through the Bible. No matter what translation of the Bible you read, okay, it says sing to the Lord. Okay, if you're reading the NASB, the ESV, the NET, the RSV, the NLT, um, even the NLT, everything says sing. Sing to the Lord. You can't get away from it. It's saying sing to the Lord. Um, So there's something about singing that is good and right for us to do before God. It says sing to the Lord a new song. And I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I think, what's wrong with the old songs? Why sing to the Lord a new song? I like the old songs. I like the old hymns. I don't feel like learning something new. Sing to the Lord a new song. What does that mean? Well, the idea here is sing something fresh. Something that acknowledges the Lord's constant intervention in the world and in our lives. Um, This is especially true for Israel. If this is in response to the Exodus... I mean, the Lord has just some, done something incredible in bringing the people of Israel out from Egypt and separating the sea and saving the people of Israel. And so the next thing they do is they sing a psalm of worship. And so he calls us to sing a new song according to the things he does in our life. So We should sing songs that remind us of the many, many ways in which the Lord has helped us and worked in our lives. For as the next line says, he has done wonderful things. He has done so many wonderful things, there aren't enough songs out there to exhaust everything the Lord has done for you and for me. So, it's not saying that we can't sing old songs, right? We just sang an old song that's, uh, what, 300 years old. It's appropriate to sing that. But singing a new song is singing songs that acknowledge all the many, many things that the Lord has done for us. So it's praise. It's praising God with song um, and acknowledging the things that he has done for us. And the next is by the Lord's right hand and holy arm uh, that he has saved us. Your translation may say that he has uh, given us salvation or victory, and the Hebrew word refers to God's help. But the point is that he accomplished what he intended to accomplish for the good of his people. Okay, it's obviously not a literal arm. Um, the right arm is a symbol for power. It's by God's power that he gained the victory. And this language is used in Exodus 15, like I said, right after um, they uh, pass through the waters. And the Lord delivers the people from Pharaoh and his armies. It says in Exodus 15, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and uh, his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The metaphor is also used in Isaiah 52, where the prophet is referring to the miraculous event of returning a dispersed people of Israel back from Babylonian exile. So Exodus, I mean Isaiah 52, verse 9. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So it's clear that the idea is that it is by God's power and his authority 
alone that he has given salvation to his people. He is the one who is deliver, delivers. It is not by their power or our power, but it is by his. And so he deserves the praise. And I think that's true for each one of us. If we think about our lives, is there a clear way that you can remember that God has clearly worked in your life? And have you praised him for that? I think you should. Verse 2. Man, that was just verse 1. Verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. And so we see over and over again in the scriptures that God's work in Israel is made known to the nations. And oftentimes because it involves other nations. Um, Israel's job in the Old Testament was to obey the Lord and be a light to the nation. Uh, God helps them because he has promised to do so, but his saving work in Israel is not just for the sake of Israel. It's for the sake of all the nations, so that they might see what he has done and that they might turn to him as the true God. All right? God was not ashamed to make known his salvation and what he accomplished for Israel. He wasn't ashamed of that. He made it known. He saved Israel, and he was willing he wanted to make it known, known to other nations as well. Now, again, I think that's true for each one of us as well with the, what the Lord has done for us through Christ. He has saved us. He has worked in, his, in our lives, in your life and in my life. And it's not just for our own sake. It's so that we can make his salvation and his work known to others. What has God done in your life? Take an opportunity to share it with others. It's not just for your own sake. It's for the sake of others too. So they might know that God works and how God works and how God has loved you and how God might love them. All right. It's another reason why we should praise God for what he has done for us. Let's go to verse 3. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, I love any chance to talk about God's, God's loving kindness, okay? It's that Hebrew word, chesed, okay? It's, well, it's, you could say hesed or kesed. It's the, that guttural consonant, the ch, right? It's chesed, but I like to just say hesed because I can't say it right. Um, it has that general meaning of loyal love. You'll see it translated loyal love or steadfast love or loving kindness, and you see all these ways because we don't really have a single word that fits its definition. But it's a defining characteristic of the Lord. It's how he chooses to describe himself. In Exodus 34, 6, when he's passing by Moses and he's describing himself to Moses, he says, it says, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, so you see that phrase again, steadfast love and faithfulness. And of course, slow to anger is a good one too. Uh, it's literally long of nostril. Whenever God is angry, it's hot of nostril. I think those are uh, funny descriptions anyways. But steadfast love is a way that the God describes himself. And it's the same phrase the psalmist use here. And so when you think about God, think about his loyal, steadfast love. Okay, it's the kind of love uh, that says, 
when God says he's going to be with you, he's going to be with you. He's never not going to be with you. Even when it seems like he's not with you, he is with you. It's the kind of love that is, says when God has you in his hands, he won't ever let you go. And it's the Hebrew word that we can trace back in the Old Testament and realize, wow, this God keeps his promises to his people. So if you look at the word steadfast love and look how it's used in the beginning, how it's consistently used in the Old Testament, you recognize God makes promises and he keeps promises. And that's what this word means. It's his loyal love. He keeps his word, toward, his, uh, word to his people. It's another reason for the audience here to sing praises to God because of his hesed. Okay, so if you remember any Hebrew word, that's a good one. Hesed, his loving kindness. And then all of the earth have seen God's salvation. So we hear the, the scope here. We see the scope here of uh, God's power and his work. Okay, verses 4 through 6. I don't know if these are all in one slide. I'm going to read them all together and then uh, go back to them. So if they're not all in one slide, just look at them in your Bibles. Okay, you should always have your Bibles with you and opened um, for such an occasion. So here we go. Verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Okay. Now notice the intended audience now, before it was directed to specifically Israel, now it's directed to all the earth. All peoples of the earth should shout joyfully to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is king. We see this theme from Psalm 93 to Psalm 99, but I'll take a look at uh, specifically Psalm 95 here. Um, that has a similar theme. It says, Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And so what I notice from these psalms is that there, there are two words that are consistently connected with each other, and that is king and joy. When the Lord is king, when the Lord is, rule, is ruling, it comes with joy. Um, the rule of the Lord brings joy. So the psalmist exhorts us to proclaim that joy. He tells us to shout joyfully, and the word for shouting is a, is a military shout. It's a shout of triumph, a shout of victory. It's an uncontainable joy that breaks out of us. Shout joyfully to the Lord, because through him you are victorious. You have been given salvation through him. And then it tells us to break forth in joy. And the word for break forth here just means to be happy, to be cheerful. Allow your joy for what the Lord has done to you to express itself physically. So I think of song. Don't keep it bottled up. Let your joy be expressed. So we are to shout, we are to break forth, and we are to sing for joy. And so the thing that I have noticed through these verses is that our response to God's work in our life, our singing to the Lord, is supposed to be kind of a noisy thing. Right? It's supposed to be a loud thing. It's not a quiet thing. We're supposed to sing. We're supposed to shout. We're supposed to uh, break forth. It's also a public thing. Praising the Lord is a public event meant to be done in the presence of other people. 
So in this psalm, in these verses, I think it's interesting because it tells us how to praise the Lord. Um, we're to praise the Lord with our voices, but we're also to praise the Lord with, with instruments. Um, we see this type of instrumental praise used whenever a victorious warrior is returning um, from battle. They use instruments to um, hail his return home. Um, they do that with, with David, I think, as well. And the passage tells us to sing with a lyre. And the, so the word for sing here is different than the word that's, that's used for sing before. Okay, this it just means to make music here. And the Lord is to be worshipped with a lyre and trumpet and horn and the sound of music. Okay, and a lyre, the word for lyre here is uh, genor. All right, it means harp. Harp, it's translated elsewhere. Usually it's uh, um, depicted as this ten-string harp. Uh, maybe it's the ancestor of the guitar. Okay, all our guitars have ten strings for this reason. I'm just kidding, they don't. Guitars don't have ten strings. Um, but a little interesting note here is that the Sea of Galilee is called the Lake, Lake Gennesaret. Um, and they both, this word Gennor, Gennesaret, they have, they're the same root. Um, Gennesaret comes from that root, and it means something like harp-shaped lake, um, which I think was a little, neat little piece of information. But music here can also be translated as melody, okay? So it's a pleasant uh, <coughs> sounding, it's pleasant sounding to the ear, okay? So that means that these aren't just random loud noises, they're organized. This is music to be played by people who know how to play these instruments. They're skilled musicians, so what we have here is organized, pleasant, loud singing and playing of instruments to the Lord. That is what the psalmist is calling for us to do in accordance to the Lord being our king. So there, we have instructions for us as to how we should worship the Lord. If, our, if uh, the church has the luxury of having skilled musicians in it, then you should allow them to use their skills to worship the Lord, okay? And this isn't like a a rigid thing where you have to use a harp and you have to use a trumpet and you have to use a horn, okay? Although we're pretty close to that. Um, We don't have a shofar, so that's just what we need to get next. But um, I think that's why, right, that's, Jason, you knew Psalm 98, that's why you came up here and joined us because we didn't have a trumpet and we're supposed to have a trumpet. That's why. So I, I appreciate that, man. Um, but our songs to the Lord are supposed to be good, noisy, organized, pleasant songs to the Lord. Finally, we come to the final stanza where even creation itself is called to praise the Lord. Um, verses 7 and 8. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Um, do you ever notice when there's theophanies or when there's these calls for nature's to do, nature to do something, it's always like the ocean and the mountains or the water and the mountains. It's, it's just a body of water and the mountains. And I always wonder why that is. Maybe it's to express the extremes of the earth. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, all creation is going to worship the Lord. Or there, you know, maybe the mountains and the oceans are these ancient, big, constant, powerful things that have always existed, and even they are going to sing praises to the Lord. Um, Whatever it is, even creation itself is being pictured 
as eager to praise the Lord. If humanity won't praise the Lord, then creation itself will because he is deserving of our praise. It reminds me of Romans 8, where Paul tells us that creation itself longs to see the glory of the Lord come to fulfillment. There's that groaning of creation. So, why will creation itself praise the Lord? Verse 9. Before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So the Lord is to be praised for what he will do in his future reign. He will not only be king, but he will also be a judge. In ancient times, that was often one and the same. The king uh, was the one who also was the judge. In this future kingdom, there will be no longer be injustice in the world. He will make everything right. So we are to praise God not just for what he has done in the past or is doing in the present, but for the hope that he is giving to us for the future. In the future reign of the Lord, there will be justice and peace. And equity, mine says equity, just means that he will, he will be fair in his judgments. It reminds me, um, when I did some missions work in Mexico, I did work in a city outside of Mexico City called La Presa. Um, and it's a small, very poor village on the mountainsides of Mexico City. Um, it's a very poor area. Um, but the church we were serving there was very alive and well, and it was a joy to serve there. But the city of La Presa had a problem. Um, their, their, uh, their police were not interested in upholding law or doing what was right. Um, the police in La Presa were only interested in those who could offer them uh, the most money. Um, so if they were called, if there was a crime, if there was a robbery, if the police were called and there were two parties, whichever party offered them the bigger, big bribe is the party that would get justice. Um, and I don't know if it was like that in the rest of Me- Mexico, but it was, uh, uh, in La Presa, it was, a, it was a big problem. It was a systematic corruption of the police in La Presa. So that's a terrible thing to have to live with. And uh, with that kind of injustice occurring in your life, peace becomes a very difficult thing to have. And so the Lord, when he reigns, he will be the opposite of that. Um, We see in the rest of the minor, if you read the minor prophets, a big problem in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons Israel and Judah are ultimately judged is because of this similar systematic corruption in its leadership and its leaders, and its rulers, and its priests, and its prophets, they can all be bought with money. And so they all crush the poor, because the poor can't do anything to find justice, not even the court system. And so the minor prophets contrast the leadership of Israel with this future leader of Israel, with this future leader of Zion. When the Lord reigns in Zion, there will be peace, there will be justice, there will be equity. Um, he is, he knows right from wrong. He does things perfectly well. And yet he is merciful and compassionate. And this is the one who we can look forward to reigning over the world that is to come. So that is Psalm 98. Okay, and so in conclusion, what can we learn from the psalm? Okay, according to the psalm, Israel should sing to the Lord for three reasons here. He has provided them a great salvation. He is their king who gives them joy with his rule over them. And he is their judge who will provide them justice 
and peace. And so Israel has a lot to sing about and to be grateful for. The Lord is their Savior, their King, and their Judge. Likewise, we as Christians can sing to Christ the Lord because He has provided us a great salvation for our sins. And so the Lord did something great by saving the people of Israel from Egypt. The Exodus was this incredible, amazing thing. It's portrayed really, really well in The Prince of Egypt. That movie is so old, but that's still the best representation of, uh, of the Exodus from Egypt. It's incredible, man. Um, anyways, off topic. So he has, he has provided a great... The, the thing he did for the people, the Israelites, by bringing them out of Egypt was incredible. The thing he did for the Israelites in bringing them back from exile... In Babylon, it was incredible. I mean, the Israelites, their Jerusalem, the temple, it was destroyed. And they were exiled and they were dispersed among all the nations in Babylon and then in Persia. And we know in the book of Esther that uh, Haman tries to kill all of the Israelites. And he, it seems like he's going to do it. And he's going to be excess- successful, but the Lord saves them. And these are all amazing, amazing works of the Lord. And yet they pale in comparison into what the Lord has done for us through the birth of Christ. He has saved us from our sins. How can he do that? He became one of us and died on our behalf. So, we can sing to Christ the Lord because he has provided us a great salvation from our sins. Because he presently rules and resides in our hearts as Christians, providing us joy and peace in times of need. Is uh, during hard times, during times of suffering, that we can come to the Lord, and because He is King, we can have joy and we can have peace in Him. And then finally, he will one day return as the good judge over this world. He will make all things right. One day, he is going to make all things right. And that is the future and the hope that we have to look forward to. And God is a God of said. He is a God who keeps his word, who keeps his promises. And so we have a great hope that we have a trustworthy God that we know through his word that has said that when this life is over, through his son, we will one day be with him. And he will be ruling over his kingdom. And he will be the great judge and the great king. And there will be peace and joy because of him. So, when I think about our song, Joy to the World, in Psalm 98, um, I can't help but think of the hopeful words we have in the book of Revelation about the kingdom that is to come, our future king. Um, Revelation 21, 1 through 5, it says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new.
So we have a great hope to look forward to. And finally, I'd like to leave us with this thought from our song today that we sang. I love this, uh, this verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the joy that we have because what, what you have done, and that's what we celebrate this Christmas season. It's what the incarnation ultimately means for us, that you've become one of us, that you died for us on the cross. You took on the punishment of sin that, that we deserved, Lord, so that we can one day be with God in his future kingdom, so that we can know you are with us now, we can know that you have forgiven our sins because of what Christ, what Christ has done, that his righteousness is now our righteousness, that we have been justified because of uh, faith in him. And also, Lord, because of what he has done, he will one day return and rule and reign and bring eternal joy and peace to all the world. Lord, we are so thankful for that. So we have, God, we have a lot to sing about to you today, Lord. For you deserve our songs, you deserve our praises, for you have done great things. There is no one more deserving than you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.